turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. I have printed on your insert just a portion of today's text. It actually starts with Ecclesiastes 2.12 through 26, but we're going to start with Ecclesiastes 1.12 and finish up chapter 1 and move into chapter 2 because it's one literary unit. It, it's, a, it's a complete section. And as we are looking at this record of the preacher's experiment to find meaning and purpose in life, the section from 112 to 226 forms a single unit in this what's called an autobiographical narrative. Uh, remember that in Hebrew prose, the way that the point is emphasized and strengthened is, is often by repetition. And it's interesting to note that in this short section, the term under heaven is repeated twice, but seven times he uses the term under the sun, referring to those things in this life, in this world, horizontally speaking, without that view from, uh, from God. He also, in his assessment of this under the sun world, says eight times all is vanity, and four times he adds to it a chasing after the wind. And that vanity being a word of, of a vapor, of a mist, something that lacks substance, and chasing after the wind is a good way to follow that up. All in all, we see God mentioned four times, and it's, His name is mentioned in verse 13 of chapter 1, and then in verses 24 and 26 of chapter 2, it's used three times, and it forms kind of bookends, an inclusio of uh, what this section's edges are, so to speak. And in this, uh, we learn how to view the under-the-sun experimenting of what will find happiness and pleasure. The sections where we see God mentioned start to give us the over-the-sun perspective, the lens that we need in order to see what happens in this world from a human perspective. Uh, as we read God's Word together, we're going to see it's pretty sobering, it's pretty dark, and um, I want you to, to hear and let that sink in, but to know that there is a hopeful and uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel. So, follow along as I read Ecclesiastes 1.12 through 2.26. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that's done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity as striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking can't be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself, but behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, 
and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what good what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them, all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female servants, uh, slaves and slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then... I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expanded in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I considered wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do that comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness." And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. And I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so wise? And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because of what's done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated my toil for which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master over all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat? Who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, as we approach this difficult portion of Scripture, at least difficult to our hearts and, and minds to hear of the meaninglessness and the sorrow and the, the sadness, Lord. I pray that we would um, come to understand Your Word as You have intended for us to, by Your Spirit, see the over-the-sun perspective that You do give us, and I pray that we would have ears to hear it. Lord, would You keep us from 
looking for other people to hear this message and listen with our own ears for what you would teach us today. Lord, we know that you have something for us to learn, and we pray that we would receive it and that we would live in accord with the truth that we see. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our passage today, we see the preacher walk through this real-life experiment in his hunt for happiness, and it's totally, totally relatable to today. Here in 2021, I think that we are in pursuit of happiness as much or greater than the preacher was in his day. And really, I think it's a universal pursuit that man is always looking to what he can find enjoyment in, what will make him happy, what will give him purpose, what will give him fulfillment. The preacher helps us to explore and and experiment in a variety of ways. He looks in those potential places where we might find this kind of purpose and satisfaction. He does so as a, in the tradition of Solomon, somebody who had great wisdom, had great wealth, and he is able to explore in the areas where we would share in common, but to the fullest extent, farther and longer and harder than than we can with the limits on our resources. He had seemingly unlimited wisdom resources at his disposal. His hunts methodically and systematically with with vigor and tenacity, he pursues after happiness. David Gibson in his commentary puts it this way, the preacher will argue that wisdom, pleasure, work, and possessions are very often bubbles we live in to insulate ourselves from reality. And his needle, that sharp point that he uses to burst that bubble, is death. Far from being something that makes life in the present completely pointless, future death is a light that God shines on the present to change it. Death can radically enable us to enjoy life. It's kind of ironic as we consider our mortality. We consider death. But first, we're going to examine those habitats where the preacher here is hunting for happiness. And I would encourage you to see yourself in this. It's easier, for sure, for us to see our neighbors, our co-workers, our family or friends falling into some of these traps or pursuing these things with uh, the same vigor as Solomon did. But see ourselves in this in whatever subtle ways. We'll look at these habitats where we hunt for true happiness, but then we're going to look at how death shows us in actuality how we should live. And then we'll look at what it means in the end here. This over-the-sun perspective, I think, is to worship the giver and not the gift. But let's start with those habitats or those places and regions where you're going to find a temptation to look for happiness. And to, right from the get-go here, the areas that he is about to explore are generally not sinful things in themselves. And it's like so much of life, the challenge becomes where our heart is towards those things than those things themselves, whether it's education or pleasure or possessions or what we examine. It's the making those things into ultimate things that they were never designed to be that we get trapped. When we look for ultimate meaning in those things instead of in God, that's the trap that we fall into. 
And so let's examine these and see where, the, where we can learn how to avoid those traps. First, he looks at education. And this is really looking for wisdom without the proper beginning. We learned in the book of Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. Well, it's interesting that the fear of the Lord isn't even mentioned in his pursuit. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, In my heart I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceived that this is also but a striving after the wind. Think of all the knowledge that he gained. He was first given this gift of wisdom from the Lord, but then he searched far and wide to find wisdom. He searched in the created world and learned much of how the world functions and philosophies from distant lands as he just uh, searched out all the wisdom that was to be had. And he said in verse 18, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Sometimes ignorance is bliss, I think. And for the preacher to know more, to learn more in the pursuit of this wisdom, it just becomes troubling. You know, the modern search for wisdom is in education. I think we start off very young trying to get good grades so we can get into good colleges, so that we can get into the best graduate school, so that we can secure the best job that will pay the most so that we can have the most money and disposable income to do the most things and have the most toys. And it's really kind of the, the beginning point of this treadmill that many of us find ourselves on. And education, as we can see, is something that if it doesn't start with the fear of the Lord, it's not going to be the, the path of wisdom that we're true biblical wisdom. But education in itself isn't the problem. It's education that's pursued with the wrong goals or ultimate expectations that will end in bubbles being burst. So I could fall into the trap of expecting education to do something that is ultimate. Uh, my kid's salvation, my kid's protection from the world. And I could say, well, Christian school, homeschool, that's got to make it so that my kids turn out exactly right and put too much emphasis and too much um, expectation and hope in this system of education to do something that only God Himself can do. So there's no guarantees in doing what may be wise, what may be a good course of action, don't put ultimate hope in that. Knowledge and wisdom and education viewed from under the sun with the wrong expectations is, is simply striving after the wind. When I was growing up, I was in public high school and I was uh, put into the honors humanities class for English and social studies. Um, I didn't know grammar. I, I really didn't know history very well, but they somehow saw fit that I should be in the advanced uh, uh, class where we didn't do much grammar, but um, they found that out and changed me around by my senior year. The, the purpose of the humanities class, as, as I understood it, was that we were in pursuit through literature and through history to determine what is the good man, what is a good life, and what is good society. 
And it seems like a wonderful, noble pursuit. If you could find that out from the education and from the study of, of English and, and history, that would truly be a wonderful thing. But it just is too lofty of a goal. It's just not intended for education to bring you to the point where you genu genuinely understand and live out the good man, the good life, and the good society. The switch then goes from this pursuit of wisdom and knowledge to uh, what I've kind of summarized as co comedy. In, in two, chapter 2, verse 2, he said, I said of laughter it's mad and of pleasure what uses it. And it seems like he's pursuing comedies, pursuing this uh, life of laughter. I don't know how to ca categorize it. I think it's, it's fooling ourselves in order to distract us from life's pain. And it's kind of a, a fake happiness that we want. Just laugh it off. Um, it's, a, it's a superficial way of looking at life so that we don't take it too seriously. It's, it's a coping mechanism so that we don't get too run down by just the way that things are. It can be that way. Or it could be through sarcastic and degrading humor. It's maybe an attempt to put other people down and things down so that I feel better about myself. But laughter is also one of those interesting things. Uh, Robin Williams, who's a brilliant comedian and praised for many of his uh, movies and, and his wit and his humor, he struggled with depression deeply. And he took his own life in 2014. And what I found really interesting about his perspective on comedy and on, and on humor is something he once said. He said, I think the saddest people always try their hardest to make people happy because they know what it's like to feel absolutely worthless and they don't want anyone else to feel that way. Now, that sounds like a noble goal. You find somebody who's sad and they feel like life is worthless, obviously you want to pick them up, you want to build them up, you, you don't want them to stay there. But can laughter and comedy really give somebody a sense of worth? Can it really lift them up? Is that what it's intended for? It may be good, but is it going to do, accomplish what we think sometimes it does to be an antidote to the hopelessness and the meaninglessness of the world? The addition of pleasure here we see in chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the sun for the few days of their life. Life is short. You've got to have fun. You've got to find pleasure. He says in verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, delights of the sons of man. Wine, women, and song were literally the pleasures that this preacher went after to try and seek for meaning, and he explored them. He looked far and wide. And each of these things he pursued in probably a wise way. He, he doesn't say that he was just off the rails, what we might think of as a pleasure seeker. This was not just some frat party guy that was uh, 
maybe visiting seedy places on the other side of the, of, of the tracks. You, this is somebody who had everything at his, expo uh, at his disposal for maybe even refined and sophisticated pleasure. And yet he found no lasting meaning, nothing that was, that was substantial. And so maybe you're not tempted to the seedier side of these pleasures, but boy, it just would be nice to have um, these experiences and to seek joy in them. And in many ways, these pursuits are not wrong in themselves. Again, it's the weight that he puts on them. The projects that he does are amazing, and particularly for the time in which he lived. Verse 4 of chapter 2, I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself, gardens and parks, and planted all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest and the trees. I mean, the ancient wonders of the world, some of them probably compl uh, completed by Solomon, and these wonderful um, beautiful things to experience, projects that showed industry, showed skill, showed wisdom and engineering. I don't know what it is for you. I mean, you might think of it, oh, I've, I've built a pretty nice manicured uh, yard and I, I have some neat landscaping. Uh, maybe my pond in the back isn't a giant pool that uh, would be on the same scale of a, a wonder of the world, but I like to to take care of my house and my vehicles, and I like to kind of keep up with the Joneses, but I'm not as bad as that other guy or this other person or the people who have done these major projects. So maybe you don't think that you're particularly tempted in this habitat. But I find myself sometimes, even in little projects that I do around the house or that I do for my kids or I do for my wife, thinking that having this expectation that, well, I ought to get some, note, you know, I should be noted for this or some appreciation for all I do. And I put a, more weight on that project than I should, and I turn it into a, a selfish pursuit of what I can get out of this for other people. It's kind of subtle and insidious, but it's one of those habitats that we can find these idols pop up in our heart. Possessions, for sure, Wealth and stuff can give me security. It can give me status. Look at verse 7. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions, herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. So I became, in verse 9, I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with, with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure from, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my re reward for all my toil. He had it all, but he couldn't find happiness. I mean, flocks and herds. And he acquired all these possessions, and he didn't even have Amazon. He just took it all in and hoped that it would give him some satisfaction, and, and it didn't. He didn't find happiness in those things. All right, so how do we know when any of these areas and habitats are producing in us something that is in accord with what the preacher. How, how do we know when we are looking to something 
with the wrong expectations and the wrong desires and the wrong motives? How do we know when our heart has slid into an idolatrous, idolatrous trap and not just simply living life the way that God intended it? Well, I think one of the ways that I see it in my life and I see it in, in the life of people as I counsel is that our emotions sometimes flare up and give us an indication that something is misplaced in our heart, that something of a counterfeit God has taken root, and that we're living for something other than God. We're living for that thing or that relationship. And so, Sometimes if you look in your life and you are experiencing some anger or frustration or bitterness, it could be that that thing that you're desiring and you're wanting, you don't have it. You lack it and you want it. Look for when sadness or gloom or depression starts to take hold of you and maybe something's been taken away that you put too much love and affection for. And you need to put it back into its proper perspective. Sometimes you're full of anxiety and worry and fear. And that can be an indication that something that you desire, something that you want, you're about to lose. And, and you, you, you want to keep it. Or will I ever get it? Jesus addresses this very thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so, examining our hearts is really important. So, he says also not to be anxious. He tells us, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? It sounds like he read Ecclesiastes. It sounds like he was helping to round out the picture of life under the sun with this over-the-sun perspective when he says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Study the world around you. Look at nature, and it's going to tell you that you're more valuable than the birds of the air. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Okay, if he was pursuing possessions and beauty and things like beautiful clothes, and Jesus says, in comparison to a simple flower of the field, Solomon didn't have anything. Where your heart is, your treasure is also. He says further, if God clothes the grass of the field which is here alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious. See, that anxiety that springs up is an indication. I'm valuing something. I'm concerned about something that's out of whack, that I shouldn't be. So what should I do? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Get your perspective right. The over-the-sun perspective on the here and now and the things of earth, education and possessions and pleasures and all of it is to be seen through the lens of God's big kingdom instead of our tiny little kingdom. 
Uh, Paul Tripp in his book, uh, A Quest for More, describes this big kingdom living as living for God and His glory and not for ourselves. It's, it's for the, the king and his kingdom, not these little kings that are always seeking to build our own kingdom of stuff because we're just tied down to these earthbound things and the anxieties that come with them. Instead, we should be living for the, the bigger kingdom. That's what Paul reveals as he describes in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Everything you do, every pursuit that you go after, do it through Him. So as the preacher is considering each of these areas that could bring meaning, could bring happiness, he's going along and he's going fast and hard, but then he like slams into a brick wall in 2.12 through 23 where death shows up. Because he's working hard in this life and he's going after these pursuits, but this realization hits him right square between the eyes. Nobody escapes death. So what does it really matter? I could be the wisest guy or I could be a foolish guy. The same thing happens to both, right? That's what he says in verse 16. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Why bother? I mean, that's almost where you see this going. In fact, he laments also that you can't take it with you. Verse 18, I hated my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be a wise or a fool. Yet he'll be the master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. You can't escape death. You can't take it with you. So what's it worth? What's, what's the meaning of this? What do we do with this stuff? Paul contemplated death and life. And as, as he gives us a bit of an over-the-sun perspective on this, he says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that would be far better. I mean, eternal life is really what's on the doorstep for us after death. It's not the end of the story. And so when he considers life and death, which do I, how do I die well and how do I live well, listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, so we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight, yet we're of good courage. We'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But this is the key. So whether we're at home or we are away, we make it our aim to please Him. Life or death, making it our aim to please Him is where it's at. And really, that's where the preacher gets his over-the-sun perspective in verses 24 to 26. He sees that living to please God is really where it's at. Verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink 
and find enjoyment in his toil. You see, he didn't say just eat, drink, and be merry, and that's, that, that's it. Then we die. Here he says there's nothing better for a person that should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Well, how do I find this enjoyment? He says, I saw this. I saw this is from the hand of God. For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Real joy, real satisfaction, real meaning comes in knowing that the giver from His hand is giving you gifts to enjoy in this life. Just don't give them the eternal significance that we're so tempted to do because our hearts are idol-making factories, right? We, we want to give things and stuff more significance than it should have. He said, I saw this is from the hand of God, for apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. You'll be able to enjoy the stuff. You'll be able to enjoy the wisdom and knowledge of this world. We'll be able to have a proper perspective when those expectations are set right that they're gifts from God. And He should be worshipped for giving us even these sinful pleasures. It's Solomon's way of trying to rebuild paradise. When the Garden of Eden was lost and man was expelled because of their sin, um, there's been a constant struggle and pursuit to try and get back. And the, the human means that he dis, does this are, how can I get the wisdom when I don't have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? How do I, how do I build the beauty of Eden in constructing wonderful palaces? And how do I get the, the, the tastes and the, the, the joys of the fruit of paradise and work at it and make it and get those pleasures back? to do it in his own selfish and personal pursuits without God is going to be destructive. It's not going to ever accomplish what we think it's going to accomplish. The over-the-sun perspective about our labors Jesus gives in Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus transforms our pursuits in this life so that it's not a burden, so that we learn the way of Christ. Philip Ryken says in his commentary on this passage, when we turn to Him, to Jesus, something surprising happens. The very pleasures that failed to satisfy us now help us to find even greater joy in the goodness of God. This is not true of foolish pleasures, of course, what the Bible calls the fleeting pleasures of sin, but there is such a thing as a holy pleasure. For the people of God, there is a meaningful hedonism, pleasure that comes in the presence of Jesus Christ. You remember... Ebenezer Scrooge, as he was lifted away to consider his life by these three spirits, they showed him from another perspective uh, 
what his life was really all about, what he was living for, where he went wrong. As you know, his problem was greed and thinking that money and possessions would ultimately bring him happiness, but it could never fill the hole that was in his heart. Well, in a similar way, I think we should follow the preacher, and I think we should see our lives from that over-the-sun perspective so that we can go back to our lives and look at education and, and look at pleasure, the wine, women, and song, and have a redeemed view to, to, to look at our possessions in a, in a whole different way and our projects in a way that is redeemed so that it becomes these are gifts from a good God. These are things that He has entrusted to us. We shouldn't put ultimate value in them but enjoy them for what they are. And you'll have more enjoyment in living life with this perspective when we see each of these arenas as areas in which I can glorify God and then I can enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, it really is our desire to have this uh, transformed over the sun perspective on our daily lives, Lord, and really the good gifts that You have given us, Lord. Our hearts are led astray so often, though, Lord, in big ways, but mostly in little ways, subtle ways, in which we look for significance and meaning and status and security in these gifts instead of in you, the giver. Lord, I pray that you would turn our eyes to Jesus and that we would understand life now under the sun in light of your uh, truth and your light. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.